as we've approached this Easter season, we have been going through a mini-series as far as our sermons. We have called it Jesus the King. And tonight we will be talking about Jesus the King, the King is dead. Our scripture for tonight is found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to verses 54. Hear the word of the Lord. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. This is God's Word. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night and all that it means. We can never exhaust digging the depths into what happened on this amazing and somber and sobering and dreadful night and what happened the next day. And yet uh, we pray that as we consider this passage and the meaning of this night, that you would be with us, that you would be the one who would teach, that you would be the one who would lead us and change us and transform us as we consider the death of your son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as we consider this now in Christ's name. Amen. You know, our calendars are uh, mostly revolving around things like summer vacation, baseball season, football season, spring break, the start of the school year, and such things. Few of us, even here in the church, pay much attention to the church calendar until this week, Easter time. But the church calendar actually begins not on January 1st, the church calendar that is, but on the first Sunday of Advent, which is the fourth Sunday prior to Christmas Day. Advent is the time where we prepare for Christ's coming, both in the sense for us of his second coming, but also his coming as the baby born in Bethlehem, Christmas Day again. You know, Christmas Day is such a beautiful time that even our jaded, hostile, money and sex-centered culture is still awed by it. And it should be that God would so love the world that he would become one of us, that unto us a child is born, that unto us a son is given that would be called, among other things, mighty God is touching beyond belief. God came to be with us. God became one of us. How nice it would be to believe that God came to us and we received him with rejoicing. How nice it would be to think that our king came to us and we couldn't do enough for him. How nice it would be be to believe that people couldn't, be, couldn't stand to be away from him for even a moment. 
But the touching story that should have been never was. No, no, in fact, the story of Jesus' life could be called God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. A quote from R.C. Sproul. God came to us as a baby, no less, in a manger, and the humanity tries to kill him immediately. For when the Magi show up to worship the one who was born king of the Jews, King Herod sends them to Bethlehem, knowing that's where the Messiah was to be born sometime, and sends them there with the instructions to let him know as soon as they find out where the child is. Of course, what he doesn't tell them is that he intends to murder the child, to murder the Messiah, to murder our king, to murder God come to us. Mary and Joseph have to take Jesus and flee for their lives to Egypt, out of the promised land. And it doesn't get any better. After Jesus is baptized, the good people of Nazareth, his hometown, mind you, where he grew up, try to throw him off a cliff. The Pharisees soon begin plotting how to kill him, and why? Because he healed a guy with a shriveled hand, and it happened to be on a Sabbath day. Other Jewish leaders want to kill him when they realize he's making himself equal with God. And when the religious leaders saw how many people were turning to Jesus, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, they, they what? They rejoiced? They declared a holiday? They instituted a new feast? No, they concluded that they had to kill him. Eventually, of course, they finally get him. One of Jesus' closest friends betray him, and they arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, to be clear, to state the obvious, Jesus could have stopped it at any time. When some of the disciples, in fact, tried to step in and, and keep the arrest from happening, he more or less said, uh, hey, thanks, but if I wanted help, I wouldn't call on y'all. He would have said y'all, I'm sure. <laughs> Twelve ex-fishermen ex-tax collectors and such. No, I wouldn't call on y'all. I would call on 12 legions of angels, thank you very much. As he, in fact, had said earlier, John 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So they arrest him, put him through a farce of a trial, mock him, torture him, and, of course, finally execute him in the most cruel and unusual punishment the enlightened Roman Empire had invented. Jesus was dead. The one who had been born our king was dead. God was dead. Can we even get our heads around that idea? God was dead. The one who had created trees was nailed to one. The one who had created light was enveloped in darkness. He gave us life and we killed him. Thus answering the question of what we would do to God if we could just get our hands on him. And we did. And to me at least, all of this begs the question, why would God bother? Why would he come here? Why would he come to us knowing that this is how we would treat him? Actually, Jesus came here precisely because he knew how we would treat him. But that still all the more begs the question, so why? Why would he come? There's many ways to answer that. 
I think one, one word answer would simply be because of love. Listen to this quote from John Ortberg in his book, Who Is This Man? There he says, Jesus died for love. He said it was his choice. It wasn't Pilate's. It wasn't Herod's. It wasn't Caesar's. It wasn't the chief priests. It wasn't the crowds. Jesus outlasted and outfought and outmaneuvered and outfought every group, every power. But mostly, he just outloved everybody. But even God's love doesn't quite explain the cross, does it? Why did Jesus' love compel him to go to the cross, to lay down his life of his own accord? What, how do those connect? I think some of the greatest souls who have ever lived have grappled with this marvelous question and have tried to give it expression for us. And so here's a few examples that can say it better than I think any of us can. This is from John Milton in Paradise Lost. He imagines a conversation between God the Father and God the Son in eternity past. And after sorrowing over the rebellion of Adam and Eve and how it broke the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God, Milton imagines Jesus the Son making an offer to God the Father, and it goes something like this. Jesus speaking to the Father says, Behold me then, me for him, life for life I offer. On me let thine anger fall. Account me man. I for his sake will leave thy bosom and this glory next to thee freely put off and for him lastly die. Well pleased. On me let death wreak all his rage. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis has Aslan, the Christ figure in that story, explain his death on the stone table at the hands of the white witch in this way. If she, that is the white witch who had put him to death, if she could have looked a little farther back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death would start working backward. And finally, lyrics to a hymn that we sometimes sing give expression to this ourselves. Behold the man upon a cross, we sing, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. But surely none of them say it any better than the most ancient one that I can think of at least from the prophet Isaiah who sums it up so well, at least 500, if not 700 years before Jesus came. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are astounded to think that it was our sin that held him there. 
that we, even though we were running so hard far from you, as far away from you as we could get, you nevertheless pursued us. We don't understand such love. Why would you love someone who rejected you? Why would you love someone who rebelled against you and yet you pursued us all the way to the arrest, the trial, the torture, the execution, and the tomb? So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you were willing to do and what you left in order to do that. Help us to understand just a little bit more tonight your love for us and what it cost you to love us. We thank you so much for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.